Today we have Spencer Hillegas on the show. Is your day-to-day job leaving you too little time to spend with your family? Spencer was in the same boat and he decided it was time for a change. He started investing in real estate and changed his life forever. Spencer spent 13 years in Silicon Valley tech companies before he became invested and partnered in over 40 large real estate deals split between large apartment communities and self-storage facilities. In this episode, you will learn the typical three phases that real estate investors pass through. His experience investing seven figures into real estate syndications. His focus on the who and what is the goal for the money? That's the question he asks each investor that wants to get into any of his deals. And he also provides a seven-point investor guide available to all listeners. Listen and learn. Are you looking to invest in multifamily real estate and want to learn? Go to join.darrenbatchelder.com, sign up, and start your journey. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Spencer before we start the show. Spencer lives in California with his family. He spent 13 years in the tech field before investing in real estate. He's seen how it's changed his life, and he wants to share his journey with others. Now, onto the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Spencer Hillegas. Spencer, appreciate coming on the show. Darren, pleasure to be here. Really excited to chat with you. Fantastic. So just a little bit on how we know each other. This is our first time talking, but Spencer is all over social media. And when it comes to multifamily, he is really, he has a ton of experience, so I am so interested to learn from this guy. Um, and I look forward to bumping into him at, at multifamily conferences going forward. So with that, can you share with the listeners kind of your background, how many properties and how many units uh, you're invested in? Yeah, and thanks again for having me on, Darren. And Absolutely. the feelings are mutual. I mean, you put out a ton of educational content out there for the benefit of all active, passive, and beyond. So thank you. Absolutely. Um, you know, as a guy who spent, uh, you know, 13 years in Silicon Valley tech companies, it's say, it sounds a little strange uh, to say out loud, but at this point, we are currently uh, invested and or partnered in over 40 large real estate deals. Uh, that is a split between large apartment communities and self-storage facilities uh, spread throughout the Sunbelt of the United States. You know that very well. You are seated in part of that Sunbelt, my favorite market of all of them right now. Uh, and in Texas. Uh, but yeah, that, that's been quite the journey. Um, you know, going from grew up in a real estate household with a dad as a broker uh, who made me work uh, open houses as a teenager. There's a photo of me sitting on a plot of land he was selling back <laughs> in the 90s, you know, and uh, all that kind of scared me into tech, frankly. Did it really? Um, Why? You know, it's not that it, this sounds so silly and I'm kind of m- m- making light of it, but. Uh, you know, it's not as cool to tell your friends you work for a real estate company when you're sitting there in the heart of Silicon Valley and the next Google and Uber and Facebook are getting built, of course, you know. That's true. 
and uh, in hindsight, there's a reason a lot of really great, successful, wealthy, pay it forward people end up in real estate ultimately. And that's because that's the biggest wealth driver that everyone in the, in the world uses. So uh, I ended up here anyways, Darren, it's just through a different lens, but none of us want to necessarily become our parents in our, in our teenage years. No, I, I, I get we that. I end up there somehow, right? I've got two college age kids and, and what my, my oldest is going to be, my son is going to be graduating from A&M and um, come, you know, in the next few weeks. And my daughter is just starting out college um, in, in Florida and on the West coast, but. Oh, it's amazing. You know, they, it, you know, there comes a time where it, it doesn't matter what you do or what your experience is. They want to get advice from other people, you know? And so there's other people that have a bigger influence on them than, than mom and dad at times. So. Um, totally. It's fun, it's well, kudos to you on getting them to college age, though. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny how uh, ours you, are younger. You came full full speed ahead. So yeah, you have kids. What what ages? Uh, ours our boys are younger. We have two of them. Uh, one just turned nine of them. Turned nine uh, yesterday. Uh, the other is five. So little dudes. Little dudes. It goes by fast, my friend. So enjoy it. Hey, um, can you share? So first of all, you. Maybe just share a little bit on when you started investing, because my understanding is you started investing as a passive um, with your own capital, and then you started to branch off. And at one point, you left your tech job and went full time, and then you started bringing other people into the fold. So maybe can you walk through that history a little bit? Yeah, happy to. I mean, and you could probably attest to this as well, Darren, in your own journey, uh, but in hindsight, it's all clear. There's clear phases. I could think of three of them. Going through this at the time, I have to say this out loud, clear as mud. You know, <laughs> you're, you're, you're hacking through this with a figurative machete, uh, questioning everything from time to time, having big wins, learnings, losses, all the rest. But we started out, I was uh, working, I've worked at five fintech or financial tech companies, um, starting with you know the biggest one many years ago at Intuit, a company that does a third of the country's uh, tax return through TurboTax, et cetera. Um, a lot of similar style of companies. So I was building teams and operations groups in those types of companies. Those are hard hours, you know, and I, I believe in your background, you had, you had a run in technology as well. And I was working in earlier and earlier stage tech companies, Darren. And those, those were the earliest years for our firstborn. Um, didn't see him as much as I wanted to. There was a solid two week period back in, you know, around 2016 or so when uh, I don't think I saw him for like a two week period because I was going in when the lights were off, you know, it was dark out in the morning. It was dark when I got home. And, you know, the Silicon Valley lottery, as it were, just to give this context, it's like this unwritten kind of dynamic where folks want to go in and get a piece of equity in the next big company that can have a huge exit, right? Yeah, huge, absolutely. Huge exit, big, absolve my financial sins, right? Right. Um, and uh, in the end, that just doesn't work for most people. So we were, you know, unofficially running that playbook in our household. Jennifer, my wife, and uh, she had her own career, I had my own career. And so, but we eventually kind of got the bug and said, like, there's just got to be a, there's got to be another, another way here. Uh, that, that was the spark when I was at my kind of hardest of a hard uh, point in that career. And I didn't see an off ramp from that lifestyle. You know, we were doing good, you know, great income. You know, I, I don't want to you know, make it, make it a small thing. I really enjoyed my W2 career, most of it, but making great money in a very expensive market, not seeing your kids enough and not striking anything remotely resembling a balance, uh, 
eventually has to give. So we started sure. l- looking at rentals, spent a whole summer in phase one, bought a rental, took us all summer to buy a rental locally, $430,000 purchase price for $200 in cash flow net. That is not what you call a cash flow win. <laughs> that, that is a quick way to run out of capital. And phase two, we kind of got the message from that learning. We still own that rental now. Sure, it's got good appreciation, but we started buying rentals in the Midwest. Uh, we got up to five, 60K roughly average purchase price. Uh, and ultimately, we got to uh, 250 bucks a month in cash flow, right? Which is, sounds pretty damn good on paper. Uh, but then you consider things that people don't teach you until you go through it. Like when one single family home that's in a C-class neighborhood, that tenant moves out, or you have to get, you have to help them move out for the right reasons, not easy to do. Ultimately, that's going to go from 100% occupancy to zero overnight. You know, uh, that we have since sold those properties. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's crazy because, you know, we're, we're going to get into the multifamily world, but like, that's where most people start, though, is, is buying a single family or, or even a duplex. For, for myself, it was a duplex. And it's crazy when one tenant moves out, you can go from 100% to 0%. Or in a duplex, I went from 100% to 50%. And, and that, you know, thankfully for myself, and it sounds like yourself as well, like you, you had a good income, so it probably didn't impact you as, as dramatically. But some people... You know that cash flow they're looking to use, you know, for their living expenses, and that's a huge hit. So, when you know, when people have asked me, like, "Well, should I start small or, or get into large scale multifamily?" I'm like, "It sounds funny, but you know, there's there's less risk when you have, you know, 70, 80, 100, 200 units. You're always going to have some vacant, but." You got the cash flow from all the others, and you're not going to go to 50% or 0%. I mean, and God, you nailed it. it. It does sound silly to most folks from the outside who haven't had some of these experiences that you and I have. Right. And I forget that sometimes. Yeah. You know, because you get down this, this wonderful, you know, fruitful rabbit hole of these bigger properties and you forget that is the most relatable experience that anyone out there who eventually buys a home is going to go through. They think, I'm going to live in an apartment, sure. I'm not going to go buy an apartment building right? because people with way more money buy those. I can't afford those, but they don't really realize what I got to in phase three after we went through a rental phase and sold them, which was like, oh, there's these things I can go and buy a piece of an apartment building. That's weird. You know, that was my first reaction. Um, but I, I really got stung by that that management experience, you know, and we were still using property managers, by the way, you know, right. whenever someone t- you know, tries to tell me, oh, uh, rentals are passive. I'm like, show me one. Um, and, and, and I'm not anti-rental. Like there will be a time when our kids are older, perhaps, when we buy some more single family home rentals, probably. Um, but two working folks, busy careers, young kids, uh, fielding calls from a property manager you're paying 10% to. Right. No, that wasn't a good fit for our life stage. You know, uh, so I had a exposure for phase three before I kind of got to this corny, you know, third phase of this, of this three part journey before we invested our, our money into our first 25 K was the first 25 K investment we made into an apartment uh, syndication. And I, I was working in the guts of the biggest fix and flip lender in the country. And it, it was a tech company first, 
but it was also, it's called Lending Home. It used to be called Lending Home. It's now it's rebranded as Kiavi, just to give them a plug. I'm not being paid to say it. I just, I think they're <laughs> doing good stuff. Um, and I was brought in to grow their origination groups. And we were doing 600 fix and flip loans per month at the time. I had a lens that was very limited on real estate. I was seeing the numbers though, of what these investors, we were doing loans to investors who are buying fix and flips. And I was like, I can't swing a hammer, Darren. Like right. I, I, I need YouTube to fix stuff around the house and Jennifer can do that better than I can. So I, but I saw the numbers and I saw what people were doing and I was like, I'm clearly not paying enough attention to stuff that can really move the needle here. So flash forward 18 months later, I had read 24 books. I had listened to wow. over 400, po 400 podcasts, uh, much like the one you're doing here with is like quality education, meaningful experience from people who have gone through it. I did not need to read 24 books. I do not recommend anyone read 24 books if they want to go take this seriously, passive or active. You don't need to read that much. I was procrastinating um, after a point. But well, you know, I think it's I think it's scary. I mean, you talked about like the these the three phases you've gone through and and talked about getting into single family. I think it's you know, it's, I'm 52. I got involved when I was what 47 5 years ago and I had the capital, but I was still scared buying that first duplex because it was something I hadn't done before. It was some, it was an unknown. So I, and I also think that mindset plays into it, you know? So in, it wasn't until I got around a lot of other people that were buying these large deals that I was like, if they could do it, I could do it. But, you know, right. you, you know, everybody that I've talked to, even the ones that have 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 units, they talk about that first deal, whether it was a single family, a duplex, you know, a, a first syndication, whatever it is, People were scared. Like that was, yeah. you know, and now they're buying $30 million, $50 million deals and they're not scared anymore. Um, but it's like anything in life. The first time you do it, it's scary. Absolutely terrifying. I just, just to validate that, you know, and that is a comfort zone. You know, that's a, as I got to give credit to whoever said this many years before I did, someone much smarter than me. Um, you know, we all bump up against our current comfort zone when we try new things, we learn new things. We talk to a person we've never met before. We, we try something and fail at it, moving forward, failing forward. But once that expands and you do try that new thing, there's really no going back, you know? And that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah. Meaning like you and I, we now are able to look at these big apartments and think about it in a more level-headed, objective way. Sure, I get excited about a great deal. But in the end, once it clicked for me, like, wait a sec, our rental that we own out in the Midwest where we had lost a tenant and immediately went from 100% occupied to 0% occupied overnight, wiped the, the profits for the whole darn year in that one moment. Same thing happens to a 400-unit apartment building sitting in Dallas, Texas. There's still 399 other people paying the rent. Right. And that was just like, you know, that, that was a, sorry, folks on audio only will probably not appreciate my, my hand gesture there saying <laughs> it blew my mind. It blew my mind. And, and um, it's true. It, it really does. It, it blew my mind. And, and I, I was an operations guy largely in my career, Darren, just to mention this, that like I could understand a spreadsheet, you know, uh, and I know you came from a, bit, a deep business background, right? And business was a language I could speak. Same with my co-founder and better half, uh, Jennifer. Uh, you just had to get over that, that idea and that stigma that we learned from the dinner table as I think most people do, which is they have a, an uncle or an aunt or a grandpa or whoever who says, oh, don't get into real estate. You're going to lose your shirt. 
Right. You know, yeah. and, and that, that's not, not, that's not a rational business minded way to think about much of anything, certainly when it comes to going out and, uh, and, and being enterprising or, you know, building a business or investing. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, going through p- the pandemic, that scared the heck out of me, you know, being, you know, relatively new in the industry. And then all of a sudden you're, re- you're seeing the, the news and people are saying, don't pay your rent. And you're like, well, I still got to pay the mortgage on this big property. And, and how am I going to do that? But what was interesting was, like you said before, you know, we had some people that were, you know, our delinquency went up for sure. Um, but we were cash flow positive every month. And then when somebody would skip out in the middle of the night, you know, maybe they just would move in with relatives or whatever, they take off. We had a lot of people ready to move in. And that is was like, I don't know, I, it gave me a ton of comfort. Like, hey, nobody ever could have planned for this pandemic. You know? Right. And we're still able to make it work, you know, cash flow wise. It's hundred percent. It's crazy. And headwinds come, you know, and we're, I mean, in a moment, maybe we get there on the current economy in 2023, but I, I would say that that's the part of the core thesis that also drew me to this, this asset class at large, like the bigger properties, but specifically in the ones that I like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not myopic as an investor. I think it's so important. Just want to add this disclaimer for folks about how I think about this stuff is uh, the word and, you know, the word and instead of the word or is core to how I look at my own investing thesis and our own investing thesis, which is what, really- What do you mean by that? that? Meaning uh, you got to watch out for echo chambers. And uh, like if I go out and I read a blog or I see a person put out a really good piece of content and somehow they get to the conclusion of, oh, this person should only ever go invest in crypto. Well, then I'm, I'm just basically going to say, hmm, don't think that that's a credible source. I would say the same thing for any asset class, because in the end, uh, no matter how much I love multifamily, we don't put 100% of our wealth into it. We do put on a personal level, our target mix is the bulk of it is, but that's our personal choice, but it will never be 100%. I think it's so key for anyone to take that into consideration is that it's not an or, it's an and, you know, like there is still an element of good, thoughtful, goal-oriented ways that we want to park our own personal capital as passive investors into things that make sense to achieve our goals. And um, I just wanted to, not, not to go too soapboxy on for, for folks, but I do think that that's an important piece right now more than ever um, as we talk about like, yeah, I love a multifamily apartments and I love it for one of the many reasons that you just brought up, Darren, which is people need places to live. There's no, you know, there's very little evidence to the contrary, right. <laughs> data-wise. Data I'm speaking about the United States here. Um, and that demand is expected to continue. Of course, you got to go quite a few layers deeper, and that is what we do with data-driven analysis and looking at good deals. But whether it's COVID, whether it's debt that just got, you know, money got way more expensive to borrow right. because of interest rates rising, there are ways to go and do this and invest our capital into these assets that can, that can weather the headwinds. And, and, uh, and I love that about, you know, that's why we put most of our own personal capital into these types of deals. I, I like that you explained that and versus or. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's important for somebody new that's getting involved, that's, you know, entertaining a new, like when I got involved, like buying that duplex was scary as heck. But 
it wasn't all like I was pulling out some of my capital from the stock market to invest in that one duplex. And then, and then I went looking for a way to go bigger. And then I started taking more capital out and, and reapplying it to, to uh, real estate. But it wasn't like I had to pull everything out and just shove it all in, you know, go all in. Right. You know, and uh, on another note, like you mentioned crypto, like I was like, am I just an old guy that like is, doesn't know what's going on when, when it was running up, you know? And I'm like, well, I, I got to start educating myself a little bit on this. And, and so I went and bought a couple books and started reading on it and then started coming, you know, going the other way. But I was like, what if it does just go, you know, it, and it's a huge investment. I need to at least educate myself and, you know, take some action um, rather than just focus in my box solely. So I like that and versus or um, thesis that you have. So you, you mentioned 2023 a number of times. Talk about, you know, 2023, there's a lot of syndicators, you know, whether they're multifamily or otherwise, you know, if you're in floating rate debt, then, you know, your, your debt service has gone up dramatically. So talk yeah. about 2023. What's your focus? How do you play 2023? Do you just stop investing or do you, mm-hmm. you know, do you have some other play involved? Yeah, I appreciate you taking us there, Darren. And so right out the gates for context, a couple of things I'll put out in just bullet point form because these are my beliefs about how I look at investing. Always be investing. Uh, right out the gates, just always be investing. And what I mean by that is, and I didn't come up with this ethos. These are people far smarter than me who educated me through their content, their teachings, their actions. You model after success and you'll find these things out there. Read the tea leaves, right? And the, one of the most helpful quotes for folks, it's been vital for me, but I'll share it with you guys. And I can't give credit because I don't know who said it. It's just so darn good, which is there's no such thing as bad assets. There's only bad prices. You can apply that to a building that costs $40 million. You can apply that to the pen sitting on my desk. And uh, if someone really sits there and, and thinks about that phrase, apply that to any market context. Because right now, we're clearly in a bear market. We're not in a bull market anymore. Is it a recession? Some people call it that. Some, some people call it far more dire. Some people call it far better than that. You know, No one really knows what categorically to define the year 2023 quite yet. Besides the fact that money costs more money, as you spoke to a moment ago, Darren, uh, meaning that interest rates are higher. So where does that leave us? Well, this is kind of the big second bullet point I'll share. When I was working in tech, a key lesson I took away from working with people way smarter than me, like just, you know, that's one of the things I continually tried to seek out was uh, learning, even if it meant I would make less cash compensation at times. Um, and like going into earlier and earlier stage tech companies, because you get surrounded by some of these incredibly capable, incredibly intelligent, inspirational folks. Way better, you know, they, had, they were a lot more focused in college than I was, I'll just say it that way. Um, and a framework is, is what I took away from them. Like a way to think about how, how do you go make great decisions about something? Well, usually you have to take a lot of time, you gotta make them slowly. Can't, can't really afford to do that sometimes in a startup, in tech companies but you can go make a framework for anything. A framework can mean, well, how do I make a decision on an investment like an apartment building? Should I pull the trigger and in investing $50,000 or $100,000 or $200,000? Uh, 
into this big apartment community? Well, so we had to, Jennifer and I had to answer that question first for our own money a couple of years ago. And in 2023, we apply that same top line model. We just had to iterate on a, a few ways to adjust for the current context to get more conservative, you know? But that really is like, you know, all comes down to the who. <laughs> I mean, in the end, I didn't come up with the idea that, you know, there's three ways to de-risk a passive investment. Number one is who's going to be managing it, right? And then you and I, you know, call that a sponsor or syndicator, operator, boots on the ground, asset manager. It could mean all the same darn thing, but really the sponsor. Number two is where is it? Number three is the business plan. I didn't come up with that. Someone way smarter than me came up with that. Uh, the layer beneath it is something that we, we honed in. And this is why it's so important right now for, to look at the who and who is managing a deal in the current context. Because regardless of how high interest rates go, a great and capable operator, that team is going to buy an asset, whether it's an apartment building, a self-storage facility, a mobile home park, a data center, a warehouse, an industrial, whatever, um, we look at their track record, their approach, their team, their communications, and their values. Um, and there's a bunch of bullets in a nerdy spreadsheet to back those up, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, we don't have time or, or appetite probably to go into that level of nerddom, but I'll just say that, uh, you know, taking the time on that is really the great equalizer, you know? Uh, and so do, you know, we've invested in projects. We haven't had single dollar capital loss to date. I'm going to knock on every piece of wood in the house right now. Um, not expecting to have any capital loss. Uh, but what changed in the market, just to say it bluntly, is that assets are now going to be potentially at some meaningful discount. And uh, that's why I, I absolutely believe it's a great time to be investing. Uh, but I'd probably give the same answer that in 2022, was it a great time to be investing? Yes. Uh, 2020, yes. 2019, yes. Where they're you know, probably massive, for different reasons, people. right? Yeah. Yeah. And everyone out there, you'll always find people who say, no, I'm sitting on the sidelines. Right. You know, and it's like, cool. Well, every person is allowed to do that. that. That's their choice. It's one of those wonderful things about freedom. But I still think it's a great time to be investing, assuming that you're, you're taking the time on the who, uh, if, you're, if you're passive, for sure. Yeah. I've, I've got another syndicator who, who's significantly wealthy and he's like, I've, I've got some people that I remember 10, 12 years ago that were like the markets, you know, too expensive. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for a correction. And he's like, they stare and they still haven't bought. And no kidding. Yeah. When I got involved five years ago, I remember in Dallas, I came across people that were like, Darren, man, I, I, I was buying at 30, 40 a door. And I'm like, and they're like, I'm out, you know, this was 2018. I'm, I'm like, well, I'm going to buy an 80 a door. And, you know, it ran up to 150 and now we're in a correction, you know, and, and I've seen deals trade more like 120, 130. And this is the Dallas market, but um, it's interesting. Well, 40 bucks a door sounds great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, bucks it, a door sounds great. It, it would be nice to, to go back to 30, 40 a door, right? Um, but, you know, here, and here's another thing. My son, you know, he's, he's got his, he's going to be starting to work. And he gets this offer and I'm like, wow, that's, that's like more than double what I made coming out of college, you know? And, and so he sent me a calculator and he's like, well, it's about the same when you factor in inflation. And, mm -hmm. and I, I didn't even, 
ask him to do that or, or try to do that myself. I was just like, oh, that number looks, looks pretty big for, you know, compared to what I, where I started. And, uh, but that's interesting. Like it probably is never going to go back to 30, 40 at or, right? I mean, right. it could, you know, but. And good for your son for running the numbers too. Yeah, right. So in any event, so one of the things you're going to do is, is uh, and I'm, I'm totally have the same mindset of the who, um, I kind of flip-flop the, the where first, you know, like, so, you know, pick where you, you want to be, whether it's Texas or the Carolinas or Florida or, you know, in some kind of growth market, and then find sure. out the syndicators that are good in that, in that market. Um, it's pretty much the same thing, but you, the, the third piece is the, you know, the business plan is, is the third piece, but how do you, explain this to new new sponsors, I mean, new uh, passives, because I get a lot of deals that come through my desk for, you know, from passive opportunities and they all, the returns, you know, performer returns are pretty much the same. Right. You know, it's, it used to be seven, eight percent, maybe now it's somewhere between five and eight percent, five and seven percent cash on cash and, you know, 80% to 120% total return on a five-year business plan. So like right. everybody is getting, well, they all look good. And then all of a sudden one pops out and it's like, you know, 150% or 200%, you know, pro forma return. And the, oh, this deal looks really good. Like, but you can make any deal look good on a spreadsheet. So how do you differentiate those when they're all coming in and kind of saying the same thing? Gosh, this is I mean, I, I don't know about you, Darren. This is like one of my favorite nerdy topics, man. I want to hear I want to hear your answer because my from me from my standpoint, I go back to that framework of where is it and who is it? And then I have some some trust in, in you know the fact that they have a good track record. So um, yes. they have and they have more data than I do. But you know, I, I'd be interested in hearing your take on it. Yeah. But you you some a great lead in on that, which is uh, anyone could put together a spreadsheet, right? Like a Google Slides, PowerPoint. The hard part is not coming up with what's a great looking IRR to slap on the slide to grab eyeballs, maybe put it on a paid ad on Facebook. I mean, the, the real challenge for a passive investor, and, and this is where, you know, I think just as recently as yesterday, wonderful hour long conversation I had with this couple based out of Georgia. Um, and if they hear this at some point, they're going to laugh probably because I'm going to mention, I won't mention their name, but they were brand new, brand new passive investors. They're doing the right steps. They're reading. They joined a mastermind group to learn from other passives. And they asked the exact same question. And they're staring at two different deals, identi nearly identical I IRRs, same asset class. Um, and I just shared, shared my philosophy, which is, I think they're jumping the gun. Uh, and this is where we all love, and I'm so guilty of overcomplicating things. So first layer got to ask the question, what's the goal for the money? You know, what's the goal for the money? And, it, and it's, it's, it, we're all just so conditioned by, you know, many, many financial industry marketing tools, predominantly around 401k marketing and stuff to just think, oh, we need a portfolio pie that's diversified. We kind of cruise by this key question, which is like, what's the goal for the money? And, and at a high level, that just means cash flow. You know, is, is, is someone investing in this thing because they want predictable, repeatable cash flow to hit a target? So when you ask that question, you're asking for the, the specifics for that investor. What's the goal 
for the money that you are going to invest in this deal. Correct. And it's the okay. question I ask my, myself and, and, right. and thank you. You know, I know we're changing tenses here. So as if I'm a passive investor and I was asking the same passive investor said, guys, what's the goal for your money on these deals you're comparing? And the majority of the time, I don't know about you, Darren, but 99% plus of the time folks say, I don't know. I want a little bit of both. I want cash flow, And the other thing is growth or appreciation. And you know, that is, that is a fine answer because there is a degree of extra work that I don't think people have to go do, but I really recommend they do it, which is I took this step as a passive investor. This was way back in 2017. Jennifer and I took a whole weekend. It was not an easy weekend. The kids stayed with someone else and we had a, a planning session that was full of laughter. There was reconciliation. There was a fight or two. And we got down to some sticky notes on a whiteboard, as nerdy as it sounds, to say, here's the dollar amount in passive monthly cash flow we want so that we don't have to be beholden to our jobs anymore. And I don't expect people to go through that. That was a hard weekend. Um, on the other side of it is bliss and long-term prosperity, but that's a whole separate podcast. Um, I, I just think that people are quick to go and deploy capital without really knowing why they're doing it. Because you can find a deal with a beautiful IRR but if you're a person who is making, if you're a senior software engineer at Meta or Facebook, we have quite a few of those in a passive investing group, and you're making $400,000 in W-2 income, it might make some people blush, um, but that's just some folks that invest in these deals. And they say, I want cash flow. I say, why? Because unless they're going to, they, they want an off-ramp 5 to 10 to 15 years from now, well, that's a good reason, but if they're just doing it and many of them love their work and they're making almost a half a million dollars gross, why the heck do they need cash flow? And they eventually get there, but no one has stopped to ask them the question. So sorry to go too philosophical. No, I, I, I like it. I, li I, like, I like it. And I think it's important. It's an important question to, to think about because there are some people that you talked about two different types of people, like, you know, the, the, the scenario of, all right, I need $10,000 a month of passive income so I go leave my W-2 job. Like, that's, that's a goal, you know? So cash flow is important. And then right. the other goal is somebody like, look, I don't plan on leaving. I just want to put my money in something better than putting it all in stocks. And, right. and you know, and, and now I want that to grow. So I want to put right. my money to work where it's going to have growth. Well, that's more, you know, appreciation. And so... To your point, like, why does that person care about the, the cash flow? Um, yeah, so, nailed it. So I think I think that's you know two different coming at it from two different points. Um, and can I add one thing to yeah. it real quick, Darren? I, I, yeah. I just think uh, I want to make it clear for folks that there is no right answer to that question. Right. <laughs> like in, in the end, it will change. Folks who start as cash flow investors and they want to achieve either financial independence or financial freedom, uh, they will eventually probably become, if they, if they follow that, that long enough, they hit their number. You know, Jennifer and I were celebrating hitting our number a couple of years ago. And like on passive, we don't sit on a beach. I know I run an investing club. You know, I, I enjoy the work. I enjoy helping other people get to these things. But um, your goals change because a cash flow investor starts that way, but eventually becomes growth oriented. And there's other ways to, to, to goal set because I, people go straight to the asset. And I love multifamily. You love multifamily. 
It's the core of our target mix in our portfolio. But frankly, it's just the asset that produces the cash flow or the growth. Right. The thing above that has to be defined first, which is what does the asset need to produce? And if it has to produce a 2x, 3x, whatever equity multiple to grow your money more than the cash flow, you're going to want to know the answers to that. At least talk about it internally as a, as a family before you even get there, because I can show you two multifamily deals in the exact same market. You, could, you can grab these two. You probably looked at them as recently as this or last week, Darren. And they look like they do the same thing. But that's where the real decisioning comes in um, beyond that to be like, cool, A-class shares, B-class shares, one says, you know, you know, a consistent rate of distribution, one says more growth. You got to look at, is the team's exit strategy itself aligned to that too? Can they exit this thing? Um, which is really the only other point I wanted to make is regardless of how pretty the marketing deck is, does that team with the deal have a competency displayed in the past of selling to someone else at the back? Because if they haven't, just make note of that because it yeah. goes into the risk profile of the deal. Uh, absolutely. Like, who, well, who is the seller? When, you know, when is the, when is the, what, you know, for some people, they don't understand what the exit strategy is. And it's typically to, you know, two exit strategies, either a cash out refinance and return capital to investors or, uh, which is a non-taxable event. So that's a very attractive if you can, do, if you can do that because then totally. um, you're not paying any tax on it uh, or a sale. And, you know, on the sale front, yeah, do people have track record of doing that? Um, and I think that people have different motives. I mean, even people that, I know that, like, I know well, and, you know, I see some people that may be wanting to build a portfolio of a lot of different apartment complexes so that they can sell one large portfolio to a large institution. And that might bring a better, you know, multiplier in, in the end. But if you are an investor in that first deal, you kind of want to know that because it, it's probably going to extend the time frame that you're going to own that that deal, and right. you know, in a syndication, you know, I guess this is kind of where you know I've been to church, and I plenty of times where I'm in the seat and I'm like, I don't want to, you know, paint houses or clean up garbage, but like these syndications, I feel like are a way to give back and help other people to grow their wealth, but each of those investors have different needs for it. Totally. So some may, you know, I have one investor that, you know, we gave him a great return. And he's like, Darren, man, I, I want to invest, but I've got my kids are going to college now. I need the money for college. Mm. Right. There's other people that are, you know, they invest and then they're putting it in retirement. There's other people that are invest and then they're buying a car or whatever. They're, you know, everybody has different uses for that money. Um, but I think that's key to understand them from the syndicator also, you know, do they look at each deal as when do they turn those deals? Because and because that's the velocity of money. And oh man, you know, such a great series of how, examples. How there. quickly are you going to get that money back so you can put into another deal? Talk about self storage versus multifamily. I'm I'm oh, in sure. one self storage deal. Okay, um, I'm mostly in multifamily. One because I know it, and two because. I've traded a lot of loan portfolios and I've had a lot of bank presidents and chief lending officers tell me how they love the performance of multifamily. Um, but I've also, I've also had self-storage units where I've kept for 
I didn't mean to, like I put stuff in there and then I was like planning to take it out and I just didn't, you know, and then just went right month after month after month. It just sat in there, right? Where the amount of money I paid for that self-storage was probably more than what was in there. Yeah. Which is frankly a very relatable common experience, right? Um, yeah. Americans so, love it. We love our stuff. Right. <laughs> it's hard to get rid of it, right? So, so talk about those two asset classes. What's your experience with with um, self-storage versus multifamily? Yeah, happy to. You know, I think around 2019, uh, we had already done uh, more, more than a dozen multi, large multifamily apartment deals, uh, you know, in, and that means like also sharing it with our passive investing club, Madison Investing. Um, but then I, I just noticed that I was like, you know, cash flow, that those were the first real signs that I saw uh, where like there was going to be a very meaningful uh, or at least a meaningful difference depending on, and this is not across the board. People love to run with generalizations. I do too, but um, I wanted to find some good cash flow and a sister asset class that made sense to just meet our own cash flow targets as well as our clubs, because that those are the three things that I look for still now is uh, number one, cash flow in year one from a passive investment. Number two, uh, Looking for growth, depreciation, uh, and number three, meaningful tax benefits. Um, and I know all of that is very familiar stuff uh, with your you know sphere of expertise there, uh, Darren. But like for most folks, like that's really it is those three things. So in 2019, I was like, you know, let's go and kind of lean into the storage thing. So we started to invest in it more. And in the very state that you're sitting in now, um, still my, my my favorite market and all the, the whole Sun Belt. Broadly, I think Texas is a great place for that. One thing right out the gates, just to say it, people don't live in the units. <laughs> Hopefully. Right. Um, yet to, to date, we haven't had a facility we've invested in or, or, or bought <laughs> right. with partners with someone's living in there that we were aware of. But, um, you know, I would say that the similar, there's a lot of similarities. I want to talk briefly about the similarities. Here's yeah. the similarities, which is they're cash flowing assets. And really for real estate, I think if there's two big buckets to, to approach real estate. You can buy it or you can build it. It's kind of a duh. And I've always leaned towards buying it because it's just a business. If it's a storage facility, it's an apartment building, data center, whatever, uh, you're buying this thing. You're going to do a value-add plan on it. Could be light, could be heavy. Really just means improve operations and do renovations. That's about it. And then you're going to increase the, the net operating income and hopefully sell that thing or a variety of exit strategies from there. Storage is one of those things where, uh, as opposed to just core demand for apartments, you know, the, the people need places to live and that right. ain't changing. These markets need places. And people also need places to store their stuff while they live in those places. So that was one of those correlations, but also um, just tops down, not to go too macro and too financially focused too fast here, there is an immense appetite uh, from very large sources of wealth <laughs> to keep buying storage because it is boring. And in 2019, most people still thought, I think it was super boring. By most people, I mean the retail investor, the average per human being, you know, accredited investors, et cetera. And it, uh, people thought it was too boring. And I got to tell you, right about now, the market is speaking very differently. The boring looks real damn sexy in 2023. Right. So um, I'm happy we, we, that we bet right on that asset class move. Uh, because right now it's just 
increasingly hot and looked very favorably. Um, you could still get debt on it in good ways. It's more expensive, but all that to say, there's this notion of consolidation. It's like the last comment I'll make on it, which is great example you gave a moment ago, Darren, on apartments and why investors should think about, hey, if I'm an LP, if I'm a passive investor, I buy an apartment building, I want to know upfront, ideally, if this apartment is going to be part of a big portfolio sale, if this syndicator wants to sell 20 properties or 10 properties to, to a big, uh, to a Blackstone, you know, in three to five years, because that might impact my investment. I'm going into storage, assuming that's the case, because they cost a lot less than a $40 million apartment. You can't go find $80 million storage facilities very easily. Right. <laughs> um, they're a lot cheaper, typically. Um, so you could buy it. Now it's really competitive. Easier to build it than an apartment community. And because of that demand tops down, a lot of really big, you know, whether it's sovereign wealth, institutional wealth, they want in on a boring asset class that's predictable and easily packaged into buying mom and pop facilities, building new ones, putting them under one marquee brand. They come in, they buy it, they're happy with an asset class. And the investors that came in, the little guy, meaning like you and I, um, you know, just individual investors, we can go in and participate in that ride. And I just see that dynamic playing out with more velocity now than I did even in 2019. So I don't know if that made any sense. No, it, it did. I, a couple of follow-up questions on it. One, um, going into a recession, what happens with, you know, both multifamily and self-storage? And in my mind, they're both still pretty resilient because, you know, if, if people lose their job, they're probably going to sell their house and they're going to have to rent. So that's additional people that are going to be looking at multifamily. If you lose your job in a high cost market like California or, or New York or Chicago, you're probably going to move to, you know, a cheaper area that has good jobs available. So that puts additional pressure potentially. In addition, I'm thinking, well, if, if you, if you're selling your house, you probably don't want to part with all your stuff. You're thinking it's temporary, right? So you're going to move stuff into storage and then move As into it, the apartment. Totally. So do you I, see that? You're nailing it. Yeah. I've been, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I yeah. I just want um, to get your take because I, I, haven't, I haven't owned, you know, self-storage through, through a downturn. You know, I, I think that you nailed like a couple of the use cases, which is that as much as we all like to think that we we meaning the consumer or, you know, or meaning the tenant in either apartment or a renter or a tenant in a storage facility. You know, when we go through right now, people are broadly like trimming expenses, right? In life, like, like not just how we store stuff and where we live, but people are trimming expenses. Like we just went through a couple months ago. We're like, we, we're due for going through our streaming services. You know, I think Netflix and Amazon should cover us, right? We, we were very right. overdue for trimming a few things um, just because it's good housekeeping. Not really something you see happening broadly at the storage facilities, at least the ones that we're partnered on. Um, and also uh, the way that you can de determine demand in a given market for a storage facility, you still can go and just take a look at occupancy rates, you know, similar metrics, you know, some of them with their sister asset classes, I like to think of it for apartment buildings. And if the occupancy rates for a facility before you buy it are high and they have outdated systems, they have 
they're a little like they're bloated, meaning like they're running too high on expenses because they do things in some old school ways. They haven't used modern technology. They're not using basic technology things such as text messaging to tenants that forget to pay the bill monthly. They just needed a reminder. Like these are simple things to ensure the facility is full. And they are still, if you can find the apartment building, I mean, sorry, the uh, store facility that's like still full with zero marketing. Well, that's a pretty helpful proof point, right? Um, right. And so that's kind of the play. Now the challenge is, of course, it's getting, it's gotten, everyone's kind of onto that now. Like a lot, a lot of folks are very in on that. There's a lot, there's a great, you know, not that long, but like 10 to 20 firms out there that are just hustling hard to go out and buy these facilities as fast as possible, uh, fixing them up, improving them. And investors can come along for the ride, but deal flow is slowed down just like it has for apartments. And so now the real challenge is who can go and buy it and then also probably build it efficiently and reliably without just stumbling their way into becoming a developer. Um, because value add is a lot different than building something fresh. And so the firms that are trying to figure that out are really going to be uh, going gangbusters. That, that's interesting. What is your take on... So I had somebody that was really strong. He was in a, in a company that they do a lot of industrial. And so he was like, well, I, I like the multifamily space better because in an inflationary environment, your leases are rolling over every year so you can adjust mm -hmm. to the market uh, based on wherever rents are. Um, well, self-storage, there's no, there's like they could, you could buy self-storage and increase the rents by five or ten dollars per unit in day one, if you wanted to. I mean, so I would think that that's even more inflationary, um, you know, strong from the standpoint of you can adjust to where the market is. Do you see that in the self storage area? Uh, we do, yeah. And, and I would say that not just within, I know we talked about Texas, but uh, you know, we work with a few different teams in storage across probably about 15 states and over time. You know, uh, and just generally the answer would be yes, you know, because it's, it's, there's just not also as much, it's not as cumbersome because there's no people living in the units. Uh, I mean, one other thing I would say that was, um, just noteworthy, you know, is like, you could think of two buckets for storage without going too deep into it more than, more than you want to, Darren. Uh, mm -hmm. you usually you have like kind of climate controlled and then you have non-climate controlled and, you know, climate controlled. Meaning they, they literally, it, it is what it sounds like. You got to put a little bit more infrastructure in there to ensure that they are insulated. They have like, you know, climate controls, pumping air certain ways to keep them at a certain temperature, et cetera, for, for different quality items. Um, and, and when you're looking at these different facilities, like those are the considerations that people can make. But back in, you're going to have to remind me, it might have been Q1 of 2021, might have been 2020. When was the big Texas deep freeze? Like, like, like the first big bad one. Was yeah, like I think it was. I think it was 21, but I could I could be wrong. But I think it was not 2022. It was the year before. Um, yeah, I think it was 2021. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I bring that up because we were had we, we bulk of our portfolio was and still is multifamily, but we were still we we're starting to grow more storage. And my heart went out to all of our friends and partners going through that in Texas because that was a, it was a rough time. Um, but I, I bring it up cause I remember I had to fly out to Texas to do some due diligence for, uh, at least 13 different large apartment communities and probably a cumulative 70 to 80 burst water pipes. Wow. 
and insurance covered 100% of that. But, you know, and those deals, some of those deals already exited to great accolades and happiness for all parties. But nonetheless, there's no pipes to be burst in a non-climate controlled storage facility. Right. So, you know, there's pros and cons. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, now what about, I mean, you, you always hear in, in the investing world, you know, invest when there's blood in the streets, right? Um, so have you done anything in retail office, you know, like some of these other real niches within real estate that have been kind of punished, you know, right. um, during due to COVID and, and now people not wanting to go back to work. Um, well, they're going back to work, but then they want to work from a home and rather than go to the office. So I guess a couple questions there. One, are you looking to get into any of these other asset classes, whether it be office, retail, hospitality, um, because valuations have come down? And then two, um, do you see like a repurposing of some of mm. those assets? Oh, brother, that is an exciting topic. I think, uh, so to answer your question first, haven't, I, we don't plan on necessarily going and buying retail for retail purposes, office for office purposes, et cetera. Um, I've learned enough times at this point, and I sometimes step outside my lane and I get figuratively slapped for it when I do. Um, I got to stick to what I know well. Um, that tends to serve me well in all aspects of life, whether it's parenting, marriage, friends, business, and otherwise. Um, but when it comes to asset classes, I see a very good opportunity. I, I mean, that's probably understating it, a massive opportunity um, for conversion. I think I, I tend to just be upfront about the things that I don't have an answer to. Right. Um, and, and this is one of those moments where I don't have an answer to yet how or who is going to crack that code, but I hear a remarkable number of people talking like they have, and I don't believe them. Um, yeah, so because it, it's it's freaking hard. It's hard, right? <laughs> um, so I I'm a passive in a deal that you know I got into maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago. Um, that was an office building in Atlanta that is going to be repurposed for multifamily. Okay, and, you know, there we go. So for that, you know, I invested for a couple reasons. One, I you know I want to make a good return, but but two, I wanted to see somebody else do it. Yeah, and me too. They, can they do it cost effectively and profitably? Because if they do, then I think there's a massive opportunity across the country um, to take. And, and from what I'm seeing and reading, it's not, it's not the brand new office buildings with the high tech and the great areas. It's, it's the older office buildings that they could still be in good areas, but they're not, you know, up to the latest technology and, and don't, right. you know, those are the buildings that seem to, to be losing tenants and not able to attract them anymore. Um, so, you know, time will tell, but I, I would just interested to, to see, maybe we just keep tabs and, and see where that goes. Um, yeah, I would love to share notes on that in the coming yeah. months as well, Darren. Um, I, I did want to just highlight briefly that looking at a dynamic that was covered at, um, I was... Uh, speaking at a conference in Salt Lake City at the Best Ever Conference a few months ago. And I, uh, the incredible talk, he always gives an incredible talk. It was uh, 
John Chang um, from Marcus and Millichap. Uh, and he was going asset class by asset class, also talking about what he sees in the horizon for supply chain distribution or disruption and the corrections in it, um, everything to uh, what are the implications for office, right? Like, and I think the blood in the streets is very apparent, as you said earlier. But there was also some nuance in there, which was that take out all of the debt issues that have been occurring. And this is me just paraphrasing my interpretation of someone else much smarter than mine, uh, you know, actual data-driven analysis that he did. Um, so please go get his report. But my conclusion was like, oh, he said that already from pandemic through now, we all know people have been working remote more, you know, and, and you mentioned this earlier. So office was already lower occupancy in urban core, big city, primary cities, uh, secondary cities, but big, big downtown areas. You know, that was on the decline before debt issues. Right. So where are people going and how is that changing? And that brings me all the way back to just at least something that uh, you made me think of, which is noteworthy for folks out there. And I think this relates back to conversions for sure. Um, whether it's op using an office building, smaller office building, not in a downtown area, in the suburban outskirts, those are not necessarily declining the same way. Companies are choosing to go outside the urban core. They're choosing to go in deeper into the outside sprawl of cities for a lower rise. But there's still opportunity in buildings like that. And there's still opportunity not just to use those as office buildings, but for other types of retail, other types of office. And I don't want to bridge too broadly beyond it, but I just I look at it like those dynamics on remote to work were already changing. Um, and office buildings are not necessarily ever going to be the same, in my opinion, for downtown. But there's big opportunity, whether it's outright use or just conversion in the sprawl around suburbia. Yeah, so that's, that's, we'll a, see. that's a great point. I had people that told me, so in the in the sprawl during the pandemic, and I don't know if it's changed now, but restaurants that maybe were not doing so well during the you know the week because everybody was traveling into the you know the the office buildings area, um, all of a sudden they're full all mm, during yeah. the week. Cool. And so their business actually did better because people have started to move out. So I think that that. Same idea applies to smaller office buildings out in those, you know, um, more outward markets. Um, that's a great point. I like that. Hey, so where do you go from here? I mean, like you, you said you guys have already hit your number, um, but you love what you do. You know, you're, you're a young guy. Like what, you know, where do you go from here? Kind of what, you know, what's your next big, goals that you're setting for yourself yeah well thank you i mean there's a little gray in there i'm turning 40 in a month or two you know uh, <laughs> well uh, <laughs> my, my kids tell me my hair is white so they don't uh, even say gray they say white so anyway I, I, you, you still got some time my friend <laughs> i appreciate you saying it my my five-year-old calls me squishy dada and i'm like man I'm, I'm running a half marathon in five weeks calling me squishy dada what do i have to do over here that's um, great that's what they're there for to remind us right um so I think that one of the learnings, this is something I've been talking to a few passive investors about quite a bit recently and just folks that I uh, respect in my network, which is like, you know, what's on the, what's on the actual other side of financial freedom? Um, because I think that uh, it, it, that sounds perhaps 
to some some people as delusional slash entitled slash uh, jaded slash and you know to to all that it's a very self aware comment when I'm making this comment. Um, I hope everyone gets the chance to ask this question at some point in their life through their own hard work or otherwise. But uh, it gets boring on a beach, man. And I think that people are better are at their best. I am at my best when I have challenges in front of me. Um, it just means that now we all have to go choose a challenge that's that we deem worthy for ourselves. And I've never wavered in my interest in helping other people get to this point uh, who are in it, and like I was at the time in my career and otherwise. Uh, but also just trying to live whatever it means to live your best life as a father. Uh, you know, you could teach me endless lessons, I'm sure, at this point, Darren. I'm still early in that journey. But we're going to go live in Portugal for six weeks with our awesome. kids on a half-day uh, education slash, you know, we're, we're still living and working there. It doesn't mean we're going to sit around the whole time. But that's going to be it's, – it's not a vacation. I think we've been telling friends about that now as an example. But, like, when people say lifestyle by design – it's not going to be easy to travel with a, with a nine and five year old kid, you know, like can't slap him on, uh, on iPads all day and just say, go figure it out. Like it's, it's taking on that challenge on the family front and looking that as, as a stepping stone to go carve out what is kind of a bigger version of life and more worldview for our boys. Beyond that though, I think, uh, bigger education, uh, more available for, for investors, but also just, you know, I don't, I don't do a coaching program, but I do want to be able to add some educational value beyond uh, purely just the investing stuff. So we'll see. I'm working on some stuff for this educational content platform um, to see how I can add some value that way for folks. That's awesome. And I, I think that that is what you were talking about in the beginning, you know, the kind of the three phases. Um, you know, maybe I add a fourth to that is that, you know, most people that get into this, they start with the... Uh, the number or the, the goal or whatever it is to grow their wealth to a certain point, to grow their cash flow to a certain point. But then it shifts. It, it morphs to like your network starts asking you, how'd you do it, man? Like, show me, mm. tell me. That's right. And then it starts to be like, okay, well, I still want to, you know, have these challenges and I still want to grow my wealth, but I also want to help other people do what I did. You know, yes. and, and I think that, you know, if you talk to a first time passive investor right now, they can't see that. Right. Mm -hmm. But after they do their third or fourth deal, all of a sudden they've got people in their network that are asking them, how'd you do it? You know? Right. And that's what's so fantastic is that you get that opportunity to help other people. And like I was talking about before in the, with the church, like, you know, for me, I just am not wired to say, like, I want to go up, pick up garbage along the side of the road. But it charges me up when somebody says, you know, Darren, thank you for introducing me to this opportunity. And then all of a sudden you see great returns for, for not only you, but the other people that came alongside. So that, that's that, right. That's huge. So I'm glad that you are not spending all your time on the beach. I'm sure you spend some time on the beach. The wife probably likes the beach a little bit. <laughs> Portugal has got some great beaches. There you go. There you go. So, hey, if people want to reach out to you, get to know more about your company, Madison Investing, like what's the best way for them to, to do that? Yeah, uh, folks can find us at madisoninvesting.com. Um, we also recently launched a free guide, Passive Investor Guide. Uh, it's called the Blueprint for Passive Investors. Uh, just a seven-step guide. It's for free on our website, but uh, 
folks can go there and um, or connect with me on LinkedIn and get more active on there again. And uh, yeah, happy to be a sounding board or just a resource for folks. Look, that's huge. I mean, if you're a new passive investor, I didn't have a seven step guide, you know, so, you know, it's, you know, these are all ways that you can learn from other people that have been through it. So check out his website, check out the seven step guide, reach out to Spencer, um, good guy and a lot of experience. So looking forward to, uh, to meeting you in person at some point, definitely look me up if you're in Dallas and uh, appreciate you, you coming on the show. Um, yeah, li- thank with you, that, yeah, absolutely. Listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. Until next week, signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. 